0: Hello and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going back to the 1941 film called They Died with Their Boots On, about the life and military career of General George Armstrong Custer. To help us separate fact from fiction in the movie, we'll be chatting with Professor Gregory J.W. Irwin from Temple University. Gregory is an author and historian who has written extensively about military history, including a book all about Custer called Custer Victorious, The Civil War Battles of General George Armstrong Custer. Before we connect with Gregory, though, let's set up our game. Two truths and a lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is an all-out lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one. Custer's promotion to general during the Civil War came as a surprise. Number two, Custer was not a model student at West Point. Number three, Custer commanded the 7th Cavalry during the Civil War. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and by a simple process of elimination, you'll know which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to chat with Gregory J.W. Irwin about the historical accuracy of They Died With Their Boots On. Let's start with an overall look at the movie. If you were to give this movie a letter grade on how well it told Custer's story, what would it get?
1: Well, if you were to ask that question of George Armstrong Custer, or better yet, his wife, Elizabeth Bacon Custer, who after his death became his chief uh, PRA, they would say, hey, uh, as a historian who's willing to give Hollywood a certain amount of leeway uh, in dealing with the past, i I'd give it a C, primarily because no other screen Custer has done a better job of capturing Custer's more attractive qualities than Arrow Flynn. His charisma, his charm, his ability to ride a horse, well, <laughs> some, some movie Custer's look like a sack of potatoes uh, on the back of a horse. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, but they're, they're, there's an awful lot of, uh, of uh, telescoping because you're, you're covering something like 19 years from 1857 to 1876. And there's an awful lot of fabrication, too. Uh, a lot of facts can sacrifice to tell a fun story.
0: Well, I, I, we're accustomed to that with movies, (laughs) but at at least, at least, you know, this one, it sounds like it captured his ability to ride a horse, at least what you would expect for the cavalry.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Flynn, Custer was, was a dashing, uh, person. Uh, he knew how to inspire men in combat, especially during the civil war and Flynn exudes that aura.
0: Well, you, you mentioned the date of 1857 and that is when the movie starts as, uh, Custer joins West Point. Can you give us an overview of George Custer's life leading up to the point at which we see him in the movie's timeline?
1: Sure. He was born in uh 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 in New Rumley, Ohio. Uh that's a town near present-day stupid all oh, its now in the middle of fracking country, uh, on December 5th, 1839. He was the uh eldest son, uh, eldest child of a second marriage. His father, Emmanuel, was a widower and his mother, Maria Ward Kirkpatrick, uh, was, was a widow. Uh, so uh, he's born into a family already with a bunch of, of half brothers and half sisters and that, uh, his parents, in addition to him, my sire, uh, three other boys and a, and a girl, uh, Emmanuel is, is a, is a blacksmith. Um, which is a skilled job, but he's not very wealthy. Uh, he uh, is best known for being something of a big mouth. He's an outspoken uh, Jacksonian Democrat uh, and likes to get into political debates uh, at a time when when politics were as, as rollicking and sometimes as vicious as our own day. Um, and uh, after a half-sister uh, marries a fellow living uh, in the town of Monroe, Michigan, which was a prospering, uh, Lake Erie port, uh, uh, George or audience, his family called him, uh, they send him there, uh, because the schools are better. So they're looking to give him a better, a better crack at life. Uh, so he, he gets, uh, uh, an adve- well, I don't know if I, he'd say a better education because he wasn't all that bookish, <laughs> but he's, he's exposed to, uh, uh, say, uh, some of the higher things, in life that you wouldn't have found in, uh, in uh, New Rumley, Ohio.
0: Would that be an example of the, the phrase, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink? At least you're going to try to give him a good education, even if he's not that?
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. And some of it rubbed off. Uh, the fact that he went to West Point uh, indicates that he, he was uh, looking to advance uh, himself because most Americans didn't go to college back then. Um, and, uh, uh, the U S military Academy, uh, was a good engineering school. So at, at the very least, uh, even if you, uh, you could uh, uh, make a good career in the army, you might be able to find work uh, in a country that was, you know, moving, uh, now, uh, uh, with a vengeance into the, into the industrial revolution. Um, but, uh, there are two stories about how he got into West point. Uh, one was that he, uh, uh, developed uh, a relationship with a young woman named Mary Holland, who came from the better side of town. And her father uh, looked uh, with alarm on this burgeoning relationship and wanted to get Custer out of the neighborhood. So he put pressure on the local Republican Congressman John A. Bingham to get Custer an appointment to West Point. The other story is that Custer himself uh, applied to Bingo, which probably sounds more likely, And and in the uh, second half of the 1850s, Republican Party is brand new. You know, it's born in 1854, 1856, uh, and it's pulling in a lot of different Northerners uh, from uh, uh, diverse political backgrounds. People who are are now angry at the South over the spread of slavery, and so you've got Democrats and you've got Whigs, you've got a political abolitionist joining this coalition, and. uh, Bingham may have thought, "Well, this is a way to get uh, get the Custer family into our coalition." So uh, one way or the other, uh, Custer gets gets that appointment to West Point, and that is a major turning point in his life because it it opens doors uh, for him and it, it opens his eyes to new possibilities about what he could make of his life.
0: I do like the story of just trying to get rid of him and <laughs> so to do that, we're going to send him, <laughs> get him to, go to West Point. <laughs>
1: Stranger things can happen, and maybe maybe both uh, both uh, forces were at work.
0: Well, once he does get into West Point, according to the movie, we see uh, there's a long list of delinquencies. One of the men actually remarks that Custer is going to make the worst or have the worst record of any cadet at West Point since Ulysses S. Grant, and at least according to the movie, he fulfills that prediction of having a terrible record, <laughs> but uh, he still manages to graduate even though he's the last of his class to graduate and he's assigned to the second cavalry. How was Custer, uh, Custer's time at West Point?
1: Well, that, that, that's a great question. And, and that is one part of the movie where they really adhere to historical accuracy, except for the slam on Grant. Grant graduated toward the center of his class. He wasn't a great student. Uh, he excelled uh, mainly at horsemanship, but you know he he wasn't in danger of ever flunking out the yeah, yeah, but but custer Custer was um, according to one of his his schoolmates, he said he he had more fun and caused his friends more anxiety than every any other cadet I've ever known. That friend would later become a professor at West Point, so he knew a lot of cadets uh Custer. You know, he he wasn't dumb, but he he told this same person, uh, Peter Mickey, he said there are only two places worth having in a class, number one and the last. We're the to go, you know. Uh, And he wasn't really that inclined to work all that hard um, uh, to be number one, so he, he, according to Mickey, he he tried to uh, Uh, stay as close to the bottom as he could without being kicked out. Now, Custer would later say, "Well, you know, if the Civil War hadn't come along, and if a lot of my Southern uh, classmates hadn't resigned to join the Confederacy, my class standing would have been a lot better." Uh, at the same time, he said, "My career at West Point, you know, it's, uh, I, I'm not a role model. <laughs> Some iterations should not follow." But he was a prankster. Uh, you know, he loved hazing under classmen. Uh, he loved escapades. Uh, one time in Spanish class. Uh, and, you know, he plotted this with his classmates ahead of time. He asked the professor, How do you say class is dismissed in Spanish? And the professor said, said the words, and the cadets pulled, you yeah. know, something Guster plan Uh So, uh, he, you know, he was getting in trouble. But at the same time, uh, the people who were uh, uh, the officers, the technical officers who were scoring with the Barretts, they liked him. Because he said, you know, this is the kind because I knew his, his classmates liked him and they'd follow him in these hijinks and they said, this is the kind of leadership uh, capabilities we're looking for in young officers. Hopefully he'll mature, but you know, he, he's got these tendencies. So at least once it looked like he, he exceeded the number of demerits that would have uh, uh, resulted in his automatic uh, uh, expulsion. But somebody went into his record book and erased a bunch of, them. you know, it, 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 it saved his bacon. Uh, so, but, but he, he graduates last, uh, 34 in, in the class of, uh, of, uh, June, 1861 after the civil war had broken up.
0: Was he not just not that interested in the, in the schooling side of it and more on, on the military side? Like you mentioned, you mentioned Grant.
1: He was a good horseman. He was a people, uh, uh he, was, he was a good swordsman. Um, he, 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 he read a bit, uh, uh, more often, novels, romance novels about uh, cavaliers from the Napoleonic Wars and things like that. Uh, but you know, he just it, he he was he was he was kind of a class clown type of guy. You know, I, I would categorize him more like that. But he did just you know he he would reach a point where it looked like he was going to be expelled uh, for getting too many demerits, and then he'd go weeks at a time without getting 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 uh Getting clipped, um, and the same thing with with his studies. You know, he reached a point. Oh, I got I got to get a better grade on this on the next exam, and he and break, so he just he did he did what he could to to stay in, but not to distinguish himself academically.
0: Yeah, he, he was self aware. It sounds like he knew when he needed to hunker down and, and focus. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it, afterwards and uh, later life, when he uh, became a success, writing magazine articles uh, wrote an autobiography uh, after he died. Uh, some of his classmates, when they wrote to his, uh, his widow, they said, we never thought he was that smart. <laughs> could <write> a book. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> yeah. So uh, never, uh, you know, never, uh, uh, just because someone doesn't get good grades uh, doesn't mean that they uh, are bound for failure in life. And and a number of people who've been successful in military didn't, ex- you know, they weren't, they weren't the top of the class academically, but they had other qualities like Dwight David Eisenhower that made them successful in a later life.
0: Yeah, I'd say Eisenhower was rather successful in life.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> well, you, you mentioned the date of uh, 1861, and according to the movie, the first action in the Civil War that we see Custer taking part in is on July 21st, 1861 at Manassas. And almost immediately, he does something that he shouldn't do when he knocks down his commanding officer and orders him his men to take a bridge. How well did the movie do showing Custer during the Manassas campaign?
1: It's 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 it's, it's exaggerated. The depiction of Custer and Bull Run is exaggerated. Now, uh, you know he graduates, uh, uh, I like June twenty June twenty fourth, eighteen sixty one. Goes to New York, orders a uniform, uh, buys a saber and a revolver and other officer equipment, heads down to Washington, and he's assigned to accompany the Second Cavalry, which is part of the army that's going to try to capture Richmond, which is going to march on Bull Run. Um, you know, it's his first battle in and, and, and his uh, Civil War memoirs, which he was writing at the time of his death. He just, you know, I was there <laughs> and watched this and wondered if we got into action, if I should use a saber or a pistol. But he doesn't talk about uh, knocking out a squadron command or performing any feats of daring do. Uh, Congressman Bingham, who uh, got him into West Point, would later claim that uh, when the Union forces were retreating, uh, a wagon got upset on a bridge, uh, and troops began panicking because they had visions of rebel cavalry coming down on top of them, and that Custer stepped in and restored order. And and he may have done that, uh, but uh, you know that, that, that punching out punching out a, a superior officer on the battlefield—only that, that in Hollywood could you get away. I
0: was going to say there's demerits in uh, in West Point, but I I think that that might be something that you would not be able to come back from. <laughs> well, there is a scene in the movie where Major Romulus Tape is writing a letter to Custer to reprimand him. But then Lieutenant General Scott walks in, and upon the news that Confederate General Lee is near Gettysburg, Scott orders tape to dictate a letter to appoint a new Brigadier General to command the Michigan Brigade. And that letter gets written down on the it's interesting the way the movie shows it. It gets written down on the paper that was originally addressed to Custer at top, where they're going to reprimand him, And then at the, the bottom in the letter is this, you know, "Oh, you're appointed to being a Brigadier General." And the impression I got here was that it was both rushed a mistake, and a complete surprise to Custer himself. Is that true?
1: Custer's promotion from first lieutenant to brigadier general at the end of June 1863 uh, came as a surprise to most of the rest of the Army and and probably to him, but it wasn't an accident. Uh, After Bull Run, uh, he's a West Pointer, and even uh, a, a West Pointer with a poorly ingested Military education. He's been trained to be a soldier for four years, and he's part of an army of amateurs. All these civilians who have been recruited. I mean, during the first year of the war, the Union Army went from sixteen thousand men to more than six hundred thousand. So having uh, you know officers uh, with any kind of 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 training, uh, well, they were at premium, and so he starts getting uh, assigned to uh, various staff positions. And by the spring of 1862, he is assigned to the staff of the most uh, powerful soldier in the Union Army, Major General George B. McClellan, who commands the Army of the Potomac. That was the North's largest field army. And uh, McClellan loves Custer. He says this guy, his head was always clear in danger. It always brought me accurate reports. I could count on him for anything. And uh, Custer, you know, goes from being the goat of his class, you know, the Charlie Brown of West Point. To uh, someone sitting on on the footstool at the center of power, and he's he's getting uh, he's making connections, he's networking, uh, as as uh, as we say today. And, and you know the, the command, uh, even though most officers aren't West Pointers they're, they're fresh from civilian life, the senior command, these are West Pointers, they look out for each other, and they look out for for their for their you know for their uh, younger uh, uh, younger associates. And uh, McClellan, uh, yeah, you know, he, he, uh, it's funny, uh, Custer idolized He said he died for him. And this is a, an officer who uh, was always looking for a fight. Uh, and he feels that way about a general specialized in avoiding fights. You know, McClellan was extra cautious. Uh, but he serves with McClellan until McClellan's re- removed from command after Antito in November 1862. And it looks like, oh, i got to go back and serve as a platoon commander. Uh, but then another uh, a general, uh, someone who's not as highly placed, Brigadier General Alpin Pleasanton. He commands uh, a cavalry division. Yes, Custer, to serve on the staff. And uh, a few months later, Pleasanton becomes commander of all the cavalry in the Army of the Potomac. the Corps. So he's more important. But he likes Custer, too. It's kind of a father-son um, relationship. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, he finds Custer reliable. He, he can always trust him. Uh, to bring him clear intelligence. Uh, you know, back then, uh, they didn't have iPhones. If you wanted to uh, give an order uh, to uh, the commander of a, of a unit that was some distance away, you sent an aide. Especially if you don't have time to write down, oh, uh, or the aide you had to count on him to remember clearly what you rattled at him, you know, in some application. Uh, and Custer was good at that. Uh, and uh, Pleasanton, after he becomes commander of the Cavalry Corps, the way he got the job was he was something of a backstabber. Uh, and, uh, once he is in the position of power, he doesn't want anyone stabbing him in the back. So he starts replacing brigade, uh, commanders with people who are loyal to him. And George Armstrong Custer is part of that Pleasanton family and Pleasanton right after George Gordon Meade becomes commander of the army of the Potomac in the middle of Lee's invasion of the North, Pleasanton says, I want to give this brigade to, to one of my eights Custer and Meade says, fine. And, and Custer gets a letter addressed to Brigadier General George Armstrong Custer, which, uh, according to a first biographer, uh, who uh, spoke to Libby extensively, uh, that took him by surprise. But but he he was very happy to accept the appointment.
0: <laughs> I, I like the way the movie showed it, where uh, they were talking about General Custer, and he's there. He's like, you know, don't make fun of me. And, you know, hey, don't call me General. Don't make fun of me. You know, Like, he thought that people were mocking him there. But no, yeah, you're General Custer.
1: Supposedly he posted, you know, before this war's over, I'll be a major, I'll be a general. So people were always joshing. Him. And he thought, he thought they were, they were just, uh, you know, carrying on the joke. Uh, but, uh, uh, and that might've happened. Again, yeah, That's that a, a, a variation on that story is in his, uh, his first biography that, that appeared a few months after the little big one. Uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, as I say, he, he's the youngest general in the Union Army at that time. He was 23 years old, Uh, some younger appointed later. But at that time, bam, and people say, Custer?
0: (laughs) The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in True Story under Podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under Podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See EarnIn.com/slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust member FDIC. Thanks, Earnin. If we go back to the movie almost immediately after he's given the command general Custer then defies the order to go to Roundtop just south of Gettysburg and then they they hear some gunshots in the distance and he orders his men to ride to the sound of the guns in the distance. Uh, meanwhile, we find out that Jeb Stewart is attacking Hanover from a bit of paper that's dated I think it was uh, June 30th, 1863. And according to the movie it kind of sets us up that all that stands between them and disaster is this Michigan Brigade, And then at this point, General Tate realizes that Custer is the one that's been made general and and he's attacking Stuart at Hanover. And (laughs) this seems like disaster because, you know, Custer, you know, with all the demerits that he had in at West Point, we don't see a lot of the fighting in the movie itself, but we do see different regiments charging, being repulsed until finally the first Michigan managed to break through and force Stuart to retreat. In the, the end, Custer is named the hero of Hanover. How well did the movie do showing Custer's first command after being made
1: general there? There's a tenuous connection to the truth uh, in those scenes. Uh, When Robert E. Lee began his second invasion of the North, when he headed into Pennsylvania, landed up at Gettysburg, uh, Jeb Stewart, his cavalry commander, cut loose with three brigades to ride around the Union Army. He'd done this before, got a lot of newspaper uh, 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 praise. But it was also a good way of demoralizing, harming their logistics, et cetera. So Lee tells Stuart, yeah, you can go on this raid, but don't be gone long because Lee is moving enemy territory and he depends on Stuart for his intelligence. He depends on Stuart to know where the enemy is, what the enemy's planning to do, where the enemy's headed. So Stuart goes off on this raid and at first it, it, it goes, well, he captures a big wagon train full of supplies. And starts heading back to join Lee, uh, but uh, the Union Army has placed itself between Lee and Washington D.C. So it means Stuart has to kind of circumvent the Union Army, and the Union cavalry is out uh, doing what cavalry is supposed to: be, looking for the enemy, reporting to headquarters, and uh, the division Custer's in the Third Cavalry Division is doing that. And on June 30th, uh, 1863, uh, Pennsylvania town uh, called Hanover, they bump into Stuart. Stuart bumps into them, uh, and uh, you know they they get in his way, uh, and they fight a brisk a brisk firefight. Uh, and then Stuart kind of swings north around the Calvary, starts heading west to try to uh, rendezvous with Lee. So the the fight at Hanover, uh, it, it, it's it's a minor affair. Uh, Stuart uh, links up with Lee on the night of July 2nd, and the following day, Lee sends Stuart with four brigades to uh, menace the right flank of the Union Army at Gettysburg. Uh, Custer's division uh, had orders to move from the right flank to the left flank, to move south to Little Round Top. Uh, there were two brigades in Custer's division. Uh, the first had already moved out. And Custer's guys were encamped uh, on the right flank, uh, which was supposed to be guarded by the Union 2nd uh, Cavalry Division under Brigadier General David Gregg. Well, just as Custer's getting ready to, to ship out, uh, Jeb Stuart makes his appearance. And Gregg has two weak brigades. Stuart had 6,000 men. Gregg has something like 3,000 guys. And he says to Custer, I stay here. Uh, uh we'll disobey your orders to report to the left. I'll take responsibility. Custer looks and says, that's where the enemy is. Yeah, I'll stay here. He had about 2,500 men in his brigade. So it's the biggest union unit on the field and red puts him in the center. Uh, and then Stuart, you know, there are all kinds of theories about, uh, what Stuart's intentions were that he meant to, to outflank the union army and hit its rear in conjunction with Pickett's charge. Uh, which would also be staged on, on, on the afternoon of July 3rd, 18, 1863. Or he was just there to, you know, create some mischief, distract the Federals. But but you have a, a pretty large-scale cavalry action. And, and Custer, uh, he starts off uh, and he sends out one of his regiments, which is armed with seven-shot Spencer repeating rifles. They're a novelty at this point. And skirmishers, they drive the rebels back. But the trouble with repeaters is that you burn off your ammunition quickly. <laughs> and so they're out of ammunition and the rebels start crowding them. And Custer puts himself in front of another regiment, the 7th Michigan, leads a charge and drives the rebels back until they come over a rise and they slam into a, into a, a stone wall with a rail fence on top. Of and the rebels are on the other side firing into the Federals, emptying saddles. So Custer has to retreat. And then uh, about half of Stuart's uh, forks, maybe a little less than about 2,000 guys, uh, come out uh, mounted to uh, fight their way through the Union center. Custer has two regiments now that have been dispersed. He has another one guarding his artillery. That leaves him just one smaller regiment, the 1st Michigan Cavalry, 500 men. And as the rebels come down, he says, well, there's nothing else to do. And he charges that up. Uh, in fact, just before his regiment makes contact with this rebel mass, he spurs his horse so that all the Union troopers can see him. And just before he disappears among the rebels, he yells, uh, 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 Come on, you Wolverines, uh, appealing to local pride. And, and they give a shout and follow him in, and they stymie the Confederates' impetuosity at charge. Uh, by that time, South Custer's other. Uh, Dispersed troopers have gotten to the horses, and they're hitting the rebels on the flanks. Uh, some elements from one of Gregg's brigades hit the rebels on the flanks, and so it's like this freight train is coming down, and then it just it stops and it wavers, and the rebels end up melting away, uh, and the Federals win the day. And they weren't used to forcing the Confederates to retreat, uh, but Custer, you know, plays an important role in that, and and that's the beginning of of, of his uh, rise to uh uh national hero status. Uh his, I'm sorry, his men are delighted. They say, Wow, this is great, you know. And this this guy, uh I mean it's just like at first they don't know who he is. This is not damn West but then, And then they're saying anything he does, he's sixteen. We're so glad. Uh Uh, During the Lee's retreat from uh, Gettysburg on the last day, Custer leads his troops against Lee's rear guard, take a number of prisoners. And one fellow who's in his, in his escort writes home, I saw General Custer plunge his saber in the belly of a rebel who's trying to kill him. You can guess how soldiers fight for such a general. Yeah. So he, he, he charms with his personal courage and the fact that he looks to be a winner. They like that too.
0: Well, you mentioned the charge, and, and the way the movie kind of portrays it, the impression I got was Custer was supposed to play more of a defensive role, but then he charges, and that's almost, again, seems to imply that he's he's not necessarily straight-up breaking orders in this case, that was the impression I got, but more, like, just not, maybe not the best military strategy. Well,
1: <laughs> yeah, the movie makes puts him in complete charge there's no other federal troops there he's serving under general Gregg initially he's fighting defensively he's got dismounted skirmishers uh and then when when that skirmish line gets in trouble then he, he charges with the seventh michigan and then when the rebels they come out to make a charge then he will counter because he's got nothing else uh you know there was the only regiment available uh, and, uh, it, it, it was, it was a gamble. I mean, it could have been Custer's last stand right there. Church hadn't been successful, uh, but, uh, but, but it worked out. It worked out. Oh yeah. The movie, the movie counter kind of fudges things.
0: The movie doesn't actually show a lot of general Custer's time during the civil war. After this, we do see a montage of what I'm assuming the movie doesn't really explain this, but what I'm assuming is these are the battles that Custer fought during the Civil War, there's text on the screen, you know, Monterey Gap, Yellow Tavern, Woodstock, Winchester and Cedar Creek. And we see Lee surrendering and the end of the war. Can you share an overview of General Custer's campaigns during the Civil War?
1: After Gettysburg, as I mentioned, Custer is prominent in pursuing Lee's retreating army. And then and the rest of that summer as the uh, Union Army, of the Potomac and, and the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia under Robert Lee maneuver against each other. Uh, The cavalry, you know, is between the infantry. Uh, And so Custer sees a lot of action, uh, sparring with with Jeb Stuart and other Confederate cavalry commanders. And he matures as a general. He he, uh, becomes more versatile tactically and uh, um, does, uh, uh, well, increasingly improves his performance. Uh, So he, you know, that reputation makes it, Gettysburg gets gets burnished. In early 1864, there's a shakeup. In the Army of the Potomac, uh, a general from the West, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, is made commanding general of all the Union armies, and he decides he's going to personally supervise the campaign against Lee. Uh, he gets rid of General Pleasanton, the commander of the Army of the Potomac's Cavalry, and installs one of his pets, a general named Philip Sheridan, uh, in command of cavalry. This is really the first time Custer meets Sheridan. Uh, Sheridan was in the class of 1853. He wasn't superintendent of the military academy. But he would have been the last guy who was superintendent of the military academy. He was a hot-blooded Irishman. And um, he got upset with a, with a, a superior uh, cadet, a southerner, who was giving a hard time on the drill field and lunged at him with his bayonet and was given a year's suspension. So instead of graduating in 52, he graduated in 53. And he's a He's a uh, a forgotten captain in, in the Pacific Northwest when the Civil War breaks out. But once the war uh, explodes, he's serving in, in the Western theater and Kentucky and Tennessee. And he, his rise is is, is pretty, uh, uh, well, it's, it's meteoric uh, to say the least, but he's in charge of the cavalry. This is a guy, you know, he's hard headed. He wants results. He will not tolerate anyone who fails to bring them. And Custer, you know, is, you want me to jump? How high? You know, you got a dangerous mission? Give it to me and my Wolverines, that kind of thing. And uh, so uh, one of the first things that uh, Sheridan wants to do is cripple the Confederate cavalry. So he raids uh, Richmond, Virginia, hoping to draw Jeff Stewart away from Rory Lee's army. This is May of 1864. And at the Battle of Yellow Tavern, Custer leads the uh, charge that kills Stewart. Uh, and he's prominent, other, other uh, 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 fights, um, uh, in and around Richmond, um, in August of 1864 Sheridan's put the charge of union forces in the Shenandoah Valley, which has long been a, a thorn, um, in the union high commands, uh, a, a neck, uh, a place that the rebels used as an invasion corridor to repeatedly threaten Washington. And Custer reaches his apex as a soldier, uh, in the Shenandoah Valley, uh, Leads a cavalry charge that, that turns the rebel left flank, entrenched infantry at the Battle of Winchester. Cavalry rarely charged unbroken infantry, uh, but Custer does that, and Sheridan is, is just so delighted. He gives him the command of the division, uh, the 3rd Cavalry Division, which Custer will turn to the best cavalry formation in the Union Army. Uh, there are other victories at the Shenandoah, uh, Confederate Surprise, Sheridan at, at Cedar Creek. Custer helps to stem uh, the Union retreat there and then leads the attack and helps to break open the Confederate line and causes the rebels to to flee. Um, Sheridan will come out of the Shenandoah in early 65 and join Grant in front of Richmond and uh, destroy a big chunk of Lee's army at a place called Five Forks. Once again, Custer is prominent there. And uh, when Lee abandons Richmond and tries to flee west, To get away from Grant and try and link up with Confederate forces in North Carolina, Uh, Custer is one of the point in in Sheridan's uh, uh, pursuit, helps to cut Lee's army in half at Sailor's Creek on April 6th, 1865. And two days later, Lee is, is, is racing to reach a place called Appomattox Station, where trains are parked full of food for his famished army. Custer gets there first. Custer throws himself in front of Lee, chets Lee's retreat. The next morning, when when Lee wakes up, there are tons of Yankees in front of him. You know, but Custer was the guy that pitched him off, uh, and uh, uh, Lee will surrender at Appomattox Courthouse. Um, After the surrender, Phil Sheridan, I think, gave $20 in gold to Willow McLean for the table on which Grant had written the surrender terms for the Confederate Army. And he said, Here, Custer, this is for you. He wrote Reasons well, for Your Wife. And he wrote a note saying, You know, uh, I, this is a present that I give you of appreciation for the services of your gallant husband. No one did more to bring, bring this about. Uh, he, he would say to Custer during Civil War, Custer, you're the only man who'll never fail me. So, you know, the movie shows that a kind of a father son relationship. This older guy who sees some potential in this unruly cadet. But in actuality, it was it was it was uh it was a combat partnership. Sheridan has a dirty job. Custer, get this dirty job done. <laughs> hmm.
0: <laughs> well, you mentioned never failing, and, and the impression that I got from the movie and even from what you were saying there is Custer was perfectly okay and, and seemed to enjoy taking a risk. But did they always work? <laughs> I mean, it seemed
1: like... He was a warm-up. He up was, he, was he was a warm-up. He, he wrote, uh, uh, when I think of the charges that were made, I cannot, cannot exclaim but glorious war. No, not always. There, there were, you know, the rebels weren't dumb. They, they were a capable enemy. There were, there were times when he would try something and they would check him. But part of the reason for his success was that he thought and ruled quickly. He was a cavalry commander which is kind of like being a fighter pilot, you know, okay, they're on to me. I got a barrel roll out of here and then come around and, and try and try and, try and catch them uh, from the flank or the rear. So yeah, you know, there, there were times when, when he uh, uh, got, uh, you know, uh, got, got pushed back, but um, he, he rebounded. He rebounded. Uh, he just had that gift for it. And then he had this tremendous relationship with the troops that, uh, that, that followed him. They just adored him during the civil war. Um, you know, he wore a red, uh, uh, uh cravat, uh, along with some other ostentatious uh, garments so that his men would always see where he was, especially if he was leading a charge and the third Cavalry division, they all adapted red, red cravats. They called themselves the red tie boys, you know, because we're Custer's uh, and, uh, you know, it it it, it's a, it's a, it stands in marked contrast to the relations he had with the Seventh Cavalry uh, on the Great Plains after the war. But he was leading. You know, these were volunteers who signed up to save the country. They wanted it done as quickly as possible. Any officer who uh, would lead them at smashing the enemy and, and attaining that result as quickly as possible was okay in their books. Uh, so you know, that's uh, that's that's. Custer is one of these people, and you find them in different walks of life, who uh, attains spectacular success while still a kid. And and, uh, sometimes that 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 can spawn somebody, because the rest of your life may not be as great as what you were doing at age 23 to 25. In some ways, I think Custer spent the rest of his life trying to reduplicate the success and the acclaim that he enjoyed during the Civil War.
0: Yeah, well, you mentioned after the war, and if we go back to the movie, once Custer's out of the military for a short period after the war, but then he's reinstated to military active service and assigned to Fort Lincoln. And in the movie, there's a scene where, you know, while they're traveling there, he's traveling there with his wife, they're raided by the Sioux, and Custer manages to capture Crazy Horse, the Sioux chief. And Maybe it's just me, but it seemed like that was a little too convenient, the way that the movie portrayed that. (laughs) Uh, But then uh, they're at the fort and Crazy Horse breaks out with the help of a friend. And then as a result, Custer shuts the bar down at the fort so the soldiers can't drink. Uh, He also shuts down the trading post that's selling rifles to the Native Americans. And we see a montage of Custer training the cavalry. How well did the movie do showing Custer's arrival and kind of whipping people into shape there at Fort Lincoln?
1: There's so much to unpack here. (laughs) Let me begin by saying that Custer and the 7th Cavalry did not arrive at Fort Abraham Lincoln until 1873. So, you know, you've got 63, 73, that just gets skipped over. Uh, The Civil War ends. This large temporary army that had been raised to defeat the Confederacy is demobilized. Custer had a temporary rank of major general by the war's end. Reverts to his, his permanent rank of captain. Now, there was, uh, uh, he may have briefly considered leaving the army because Benito Juarez, uh, who was fighting to drive the French and, and the Austrian puppet emperor out of, out of Mexico, Maximilian, offered him command of the Mexican capital. Uh, but, but the army, the U.S. Army, would not give him a leave of absence. You know, if you take this post, then you're on the army. Custom didn't want to separate from the army. Well, in 1866, while they're, they're getting rid of all these citizen soldiers, they're, they're reorganizing the regular permanent army. They expanded a bit, and they create four new cavalry regiments. We had the 1st through 6th uh, during the Civil War, 1st through 6th U.S. Cavalry. Well, they, they now create the 7th through the 10th, and uh, Custer becomes lieutenant colonel of the newly raised 7th Cavalry in 1866. And um, the, the guy who's there are two people who serve as colonel during the rest of Custer's life. Um, they're given desk jobs so that Custer is the acting commander of the seventh. And he starts out, he and his regiment style, fighting Indians, not up in the Dakotas, but in the southern plains in Kansas, the one is today Oklahoma. Uh, and he does not get off to a good start. Because fighting Indians was a lot different than fighting Confederates who would form up and, you know, meet you face-to-face. Indians, if they saw a lot of white soldiers, they'd say, well, we've got a limited population. We're just going to leave these guys alone. We're going to melt away. Uh, We we can, you know, our horses are quicker and we know where to hide. And we'll attack small detachments or we'll attack stagecoach uh, stations and things like that. So Custer's uh, first summer on the plains, 1867, he is just going hither and yon. And the men he he's leading, these aren't guys who had, you know, this definite mission. We've got to save the country. A lot of them were, I need a job. Uh you know, leading in the army is hard. Or if I join the army, I'll get a free trip out to the West that I could desert. Uh, you know, I go to Colorado where there's silver and gold fields and things like that. So Custer has uh He has this trouble uh, with the Seventh Cavalry. Uh, uh, You know, it's it's not uh, well. There's there's a motivation problem, and and, and as I say, he's got this desertion problem. A lot of the officers too, um, uh, they're kind of surly because, like Custer, they were all reduced in rank. Uh, Some went from brigadier general to captain. Custer was lucky going to lieutenant colonel, Uh, and, and and they know this army's so small could be 20 years before i get promoted etc so why should i kill myself but custer's gotten home we gotta do this gotta do this and he's pushing 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 and a lot of people decide they just don't like it. and um he he kind of reacts to those negative vibes he becomes this really um, um heartless martinette i mean you do follow orders that i'm going to do you know administer all kinds of punishments and things like that bite up by your thumbs make you stand on a barrel uh, he ordered deserters shot without trial at one point when it, it, the problem got so chronic. And then finally, he su- suffers kind of breakdown. He deserts his own command to to spend time with his wife. He hears that she's at a post where there might be a cholera epidemic, and just goes bananas. And he's arrested and court-martialed and uh, found guilty and suspended uh, from the from, from rank and pay for a year and returns to Monroe uh, you know, to, to live out his probation. But uh, other Army commanders aren't doing any better against the Indians on the southern plains. And Phil Sheridan, who gets put in charge of the Army in the West, he succeeds in shortening Custer's sentence by two months and brings it back and gives Custer a chance to redeem himself. And Custer will do that. He will lead a winter campaign uh, in western Oklahoma. Uh, Diamond of the Washington River Valley He'll attack a Cheyenne village uh, At dawn on November 27, 1868 Kill most of the warriors Capture about 50 women and, and children It's the Army's first victory um, uh, Over the Plains in, Since the end of the Civil War So the Army they see, We really know what we're doing And it establishes Custer, Custer's reputation Rightly or wrongly uh, Because there were other officers Who won more victories uh, but it establishes reputation as America's premier Indian fighter. Uh, and afterwards, he pursues different bands and resorts to diplomacy, talks their uh, leaders into coming back to their agencies. Uh, because he's a celebrity, uh, rich rich people from the States and, uh, and Great Britain come out and, and they want him to take them on buffalo hunts and things like that, which is a way of making, uh, for the Army, uh, making points with... Uh, American movers and shakers, and, and, and good diplomacy with friendly friendly powers. Uh, but um, while this is going on, uh, of course, uh, the nation is in, in, in the thick of Reconstruction. After the Civil War, uh, the radical Republicans tried to, uh, um, well, they tried to implement re- re- regime change on the defeated Confederate states. Uh, you know, more or less placed them under Republican state governments. Uh, supported by uh, the votes of former slaves, and former Confederates resorted to uh, widespread political terrorism to fight that. An estimated fifty thousand pol- politically active blacks will be murdered between eighteen uh, sixty-five and eighteen seventy-seven, and things get so bad that that Congress passes some what they call force acts, which uh, permits the the um, uh, inauguration of martial law in certain areas that are under control, out of control, uh, where, you know, the local sheriffs and, and judges either can't or won't try to control the Klan. So the 7th Calvary from 1871 to 73, it's scattered to the south, uh, on anti-terrorist duty, which Custer didn't like. He was, he was a Democrat like his father and he was kind of sympathetic to the former Confederates. Uh but they're down there until 73. Then in 73 they're they're the the problems are mounting now with the Lakota or the Sioux and the northern flanks. And so the 7th Cavalry is set to Fort Abraham Pike. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's that's very different. <laughs> the impression I got from the movie was just like, oh, okay, the war's over and so he's kind of waiting around until he gets something else. <laughs> Yeah, well, as I was watching the movie, of course, this movie from 1941, and I, I couldn't help but get the sense that there was a, a racial side to this whole story that the movie doesn't really address. The the closest that I saw the movie kind of admitting race as a driver of what the cavalry was doing was a bit of Texas says, and I'll, I'll read this off as quote, and so was born the immortal seventh US cavalry which cleared the plains for a ruthlessly advancing civilization that spelled doom to the Red Race, end quote. And the way the movie explained what the 7th Cavalry was supposed to be doing was protecting, and I'll put that in quotes, some 100,000 square miles of territory. And it doesn't really mention this, but by protecting, they're really protecting the white settlers who are moving into Native American territory. So can you give a little more historical context around the role of the cavalry and the racial tensions of the time?
1: Yeah, you know, the way, the way, uh, that phase, uh, of Custer's life is depicted, it's like the Battle of Hanover. It's Custer by himself and now, you know, saving the Union. And now it's Custer, the seventh cavalry, uh, protecting a hundred thousand square miles. Well, you know, it was, there, there was, uh, there were a number of army regiments out there uh, on frontier duty. And of course, uh, you know, they were there to protect white interests, the interests of, uh, of the United States government. Uh, the interests of certain stakeholders uh, who had an important voice in, in the economy. And, you know, these are the people who would be the big donors, et cetera, especially the railroads. Um, and uh, so, you know, yeah, I mean the army, uh, but, but although it's interesting, um, um, the army will fight the Indians. If Indians leave their reservations, you know, if they, if they break the rules, but a lot of army officers are sympathetic to the Indians, saying, so, "You know, if these people were treated decently, they wouldn't go on the war path, and we wouldn't have to go out and kill a bunch of them, and also risk our own necks." Custer, in his autobiography, "My Life on the Plains," which he published in 1874, I'm paraphrasing, he said, "If I were an Indian, I would far rather, you know, live uh, the free life in the plains. I'd far rather resist than submit." It's a life on a reservation where, you know, the government cheats you, doesn't give you food and other amenities, the other annuities that have been promised you in, in treaty. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, there's this, this, um, this contradiction there, but I mean, when Custer was told to fight then the then fight, he did say, so, you no, know, I'm a conscientious objector. I want to sit this one, sit this one out. Uh, so, um, yeah, you know, it's, um, um, uh, the army's job uh, is to protect American interests. All so of in the movie, you know, uh, they reach a point where Crazy Horse says, we'll fight no more, we'll be good. Uh, all we ask is that you let us have the Black Hills. And Custer says, yes, okay, that's fine. Uh, and uh, so, you know, it's and then the Indians are betrayed, right? You know, their they're, 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 they're final resistance that claims Custer's life, Custer doesn't blame them, in effect. You know, he's uh, he sees that they're, they're, they're being exploited, they're being betrayed. Uh, but uh, a- after the war, um, the Army tried to open uh, a-, a road into western Montana where there were gold fields that led through lands that the Sioux considered theirs. And the Sioux under Red Cloud uh, f- resisted that. Uh, and they ended up uh, massacring uh, Army detachment of 80 men outside of Fort Phil Kearney. And the army decided, gee, we just can't cope with these people. We don't have enough, enough men. So uh, they negotiate the Treaty of Fort, uh, Fort Laramie, which more or less says that certain lands belong to the Sioux, and that would have included the Black Hills. So that basic agreement was made. Uh, but then in 1874, uh, gold, um, uh, at least the claims are made that, that there's gold in the Black Hills and uh, the gold rush the gold rush opens up and, uh, the people that the person that was responsible for the spikes was George Armstrong Custer. Uh, when the seventh cavalry moved, uh, to Fort Lincoln, the first job was to protect a survey party from the Northern Pacific railroad. So a big business interest is building, uh, you know, across, uh, the northern part of the country to the Pacific Northwest, but the Indians are objecting and trying to stop them from, uh, deciding where to place the rails and bridges, et cetera. So the 7th Cavalry goes out in summer 73, and uh, the Sioux oppose this expedition in force. Custer fights uh, two uh, engagements with the Sioux, and he's successful in driving them off. And I think that success caused him to believe, well, I understand the Lakota, I understand the Sioux, I know their bag of tricks. So they don't really intimidate, Uh, and he may have paid for that three years later. Uh but the army is is, is you know, thinks that the, that the that the Lakota, you know, they were the most powerful coalition uh, of, of native peoples uh in the northern plains, that they're just uh, uh well they need to be taken down a path. So Custer set out in seventy four to look for a site to establish a fort in the midst of Sioux Country. There are geologists in this uh in this expedition and the geologists claim that they uh found gold and Custer writes an anonymous uh, newspaper dispatch and it says, gold is to be found at the very grassroots, you know, it's right on top. You have to dig the deep. Now the country had plunged into a major depression in 1873. So the cries of gold, you know, elicit a massive response. They wouldn't anyway. Initially the army is used to try to intercept these people who are trespassing on Sioux land. Uh, the army is used as peacekeepers but they're just so many and the interlopers are white and if, if they can't vote because they're living out of, uh, where the you know, established states, they got friends and relatives who want to make sure they're, they're safe. And in the end, the grant administration decides to force the Sioux into war in the winter of 1875, 76. And all set out, uh, saying that any, any, uh, uh, Native people, so Lakota and also their allies, Cheyenne, who are, are off their reservations by a certain date, they will be considered hostile. In other words, the army will have permission to kill them. And and this ultimatum set out so late in the year that it can't even reach these villages before the deadline expires. So they set up this thing. And, and uh, we have the Great Sioux War of 1876-1877 as a result. And um, the Army organizes three columns, converging columns, coming at the Indians from three different directions at once. Hopefully one or more will bump into the Indians. The Dakota column, mainly the 7th Cavalry and some other troops, under Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer. Uh, the Montana column under uh, uh, Colonel uh, uh, John uh, Gibbon. And then the Wyoming column coming out of the south, under General George, Brigadier General George Cook. Um, so that's set up. Uh, uh, Custer gets into trouble and loses command of the Dakota column, which uh, gets alluded to in the movie.
0: From what you were saying, it sounds like the movie fabricated basically that. I'll just say, the, the impression I got from the movie was that Custer was blameless in breaking this treaty. Like, there's there's a scene where I, I think he's on, on a train and he's heading back to Washington and he realizes, oh, what's going on? That, oh, there's this gold gold has been found. He realized it was going to happen and he uh, start, tries to expose the plan, but nobody l- listens to him. And, you know, he he ends up seeming pretty blameless. I think uh, the name of the Sharps is like a father-son, you know, business that we're trying to to push this, to keep their business. They were the ones that were running the, the trading post.
1: And this plot line would appeal to Americans who have, have come through the Great Depression, right? Because who do you blame for the Great Depression? All those stinking selfish capitalists that destroyed the economy, right? So the bad guys aren't going to be cussed It's going to be these business guys who are willing to sacrifice people, you know, lure these people into the Black Hills where they'll be murdered by the Indians just so they can create more business opportunities for themselves.
0: According to the movie, his, with his career is kind of, Custer's career is kind of in in jeopardy there. And he takes it, he plea, makes a plea to now president Grant to try to get reinstated and try to join his regiment to fight the Sioux on what's looking to be a suicide mission. Is the movie right to imply that Custer knew that he would, going to die at Little Bighorn, but he still went out of his way to try to make sure that he would be there with his men?
1: Uh, custer didn't have a suicide. wish. What happens is that uh, custer um, he sticks his nose into politics when he shouldn't. Um, uh, you know, he's a Democrat, and that's one reason why he remained a lieutenant colonel for the last uh, ten years of his life. Uh, that was part of it. Uh, but the grant administration, listen this since this grant administration, you know it's famous for for widespread corruption. Uh, President Grant himself. Uh, there's no evidence he was dishonest, but he had a bad a bad uh, habit of appointing people to high office cabinet posts who turned out to be crooks uh and his secretary of War beltbeeff uh is in trouble because uh, he uh uh was in charge of awarding uh post sutlerships, you know the Sharp store, where the chips could buy liquor and other things well uh you know. There was corruption there, the era, and, you know, if you paid uh, Secretary of uh, a certain premium and then give, gave them kickbacks, you'd get that contract. And the troops were told you could only shop in these stores. You can't go in into nearby Bismarck and get things, you know, at a cheaper price. And um, uh, because the, these, uh, the, these crooked uh, settlers were, you know, paying extra money uh, to get their licenses, they were hiking the prices. So uh, Belknap's being investigated. There's a congressional probe. It was known as the Climber Commission. And Custer uh, is heard saying some things uh, about uh, this corruption, and so he gets subpoenaed (laughs) to to do it on the record. And uh, so he is criticizing uh, the Granite District. I mean, Grant was honest, but he, 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 he stood by dishonest trends longer than he should have. You know, instead of going after them, he'd go after the whistleblowers. But Custer also implicated his brother Orville, Orville Grant, in some of these dealings. So he's not only not only uh, 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 sullying the reputation of Grant's administration, but he's also going after a member of Grant's family. So Grant says, Custer can't go after the suit. put you him know, under arrest. He and that creates something of a furor. The Democrat press, of course, is he's persecuting odd soldier. Uh, and, and letters that go into the West to, to the White House. How can you keep Custer, uh, our greatest Indian fighter, out of what's going to be the biggest Indian war ever? Uh, Custer's department commander, Alfred uh, Terry, intercedes on Custer's behalf. Sheridan does to a certain extent. And Custer writes a letter. to. Grant. He doesn't burst in the White House, but he sends Grant a letter that pretty much uh, expresses what Errol says to to Grant at the movie. He said, you know... Um, uh, spare me the humiliation of seeing my regiment ride out against the enemy and me not to share their privations and dangers. And so Grant says, okay, he can go, but not in command. Terry, you got to leave your comfortable headquarters in St. Paul, you're in charge of the Dakota Column, and make sure you keep Custer on a tight leash. And so Custer goes in a second in command of that, ex- of that expedition under General Terry.
0: Okay, okay. A letter makes a lot more sense than in the movie. We see Custer basically walking into the Oval Office and...
1: (laughs) Yeah, again, that's like, you know, it's like punching out on a superior officer. It's exciting filmmaking, perhaps, but no, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, in the movie, we don't really see Custer dying at Little Bighorn, but it's definitely talked about, and it's clear that he does, along with everyone in his command, and as I was watching the movie... The thing that came to mind was how we saw Davy Crockett just keep fighting until the end of the 1955 Disney movie, you know, King of the Wild Frontier. Uh, This time it's Custer who seems to be the last one alive while everyone around him is dying. Uh, How well did the movie do showing Custer's last stand?
1: Well, you know, again, it simplifies things. I mean, Custer and his entire regiment go riding around, then they see the Indians, they go right toward them, but then they realize, boy, they're a heck of a lot of Indians, so we better get off our horses, just kind of... Form a, 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 a shapeless mob and shoot at the Indians and, and, and die fighting. Uh, in reality, uh, Custer, with about uh, 650 uh, soldiers, scouts, uh, they 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 are following a trek uh, starting on June 22nd that will eventually lead them to the Little Big Horn Valley. Uh, the, the, the the faulty intelligence available to the army inclines Custer to believe. In fact, he tells his officers on the night of the 22nd, we could expect 800 to 1,000 Indians. And surely our regiment can handle that. Now. But the trail gets wider as they follow it, because more Indians are coming in and joining Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. But it leaves them a little bit more. And Custer decides, well, you know, he had separated from Terry. Terry's coming down to the north. He's supposed to be swinging Custer south of the Indians. You know, I, I'll wait a day. I'll wait till the morning of the 26th and attack the Indians that that would give Terry time to come in from the north with five troops of cavalry and, and about uh, seven companies of infantry and two gatling guns. Uh, but, um, on the morning of the 25th, uh, he, he is informed that his regiment has been spotted by some Sioux who were just out, you know, probably hunting or something like that. And he says, well, they're going to ride to the village. And they're going to uh, inform their friends that there are a lot of white soldiers. And what the Indians do when there are a lot of white soldiers is they take off. You know, we don't want to suffer heavy casualties, even though we have a chance of winning. We want to, you know, uh, live to fight another day and, and do it on, on terms of our choosing. So he uh, uh, rides into the valley of the Bighorn. He has 12 companies of cavalry. He sends three companies to the south to make sure the Indians aren't trying to escape in that direction. And then uh, one of his interpreters sees uh, about 40 Indians running away from Custer's column. They approach approaches says, there go your Indians running like devils. So Custer orders Major Marcus Reno and three companies to cross the river and charge the village, wherever it is. Not quite sure, but you know, they're in that area somewhere. So cross the river, head north, and when you see Indians, charge them. And then Custer, instead of following Reno, he will swing north on the other side of Little Bighorn, the east side of Little Bighorn. And and people think, well, he was just trying to find a way to flank the Indians. Uh, But everything falls apart. Reno runs into tons of uh, uh, Lakota and Cheyenne warriors who are not in the mood to run. You know, they reached this point, these people, they were pushed around so much uh, that they thought, this is our last year of free. This is our last year where we could be real Indians. Instead of run away to fighting it another day, uh, the battle cry is, it's a good day to die. If you got to go out, go out like a real Indian. And also, the whites had surprised them. Those, those Indians that had spotted Custer's regiment early on didn't report that to the village. So there's this village with thousands of women and children. And these Indians, we're not going to let these white soldiers hurt our loved ones. We're going to let them out. So they rout Reno, and they kill about a quarter of his men He's able to by. Leading a panicky retreat, get to the other side of the river. Custer, though, has continued northward. And we're, we're not exactly sure what he, he tried to do. He probably tried to stay on uh, the offensive too long. He was hoping that Captain Benteen would come up with the reserve ammunition and send a couple couriers to Benteen, but Benteen didn't move that quickly. And um, in the course of a two hour engagement, Custer and his five companies are whittled down by Indians fighting from cover, not riding around in circles like. Look what what a good target I am should be me, white men you know they're swiping. uh and then they'll overrun decimal you know segments uh, 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 of Custer's command but they 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 destroy uh Custer and the two hundred and ten officers and men under his command uh Custer is found at the top of a hogback ridge, which was probably one of the last positions that the soldiers held um and they found uh know, a instead of an uh, Army issue rifle. He had a Remington hunting rifle. They found some cartridges from that rifle uh, under his body. So he was alive when he got there. How long he remained alive, we don't know. Um, but, you know, um, we don't know who, who the last was to fall. Uh, the Indians weren't standing, standing up. So who could I identify, you know, and, you know, making good targets of themselves? They wouldn't have known him anyway um, uh, if they'd seen him, uh, especially since he'd been up in the field and had a beard you know it's covered with dust etc uh but you know he he, he was probably you know he probably lasted uh most of the battle before before he went before he went down he was hit with a bullet uh in, i believe the, the 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 breast uh and one in the temple either one of no one could have killed
0: him. something that i saw in the movie that kind of It threw me off a little bit, (laughs) because one of the first things that we see Custer do is to tell his men to fight on foot. But then earlier in the movie, he had said that, you know, the cavalry has a much better chance than the infantry. So why would the cavalry just immediately get off their horses? Doesn't that basically...
1: Who who knows? Uh, It's a cavalry job. So here's the Indians, will be infantry. And again, they're not deployed in any military formation. They're just this mass, and they're all firing at once. I mean, they're guys close to Custer. And, and this this circle was like maybe twenty guys deep. So how do you miss the guys that are between you and the Indians while you're blazing away? I mean, uh, what we do now from the archaeological evidence is that in certain places, Custer's troopers formed skirmish lines. Um, you know, um, uh, um, these were these were uh, open order lines, and uh, and blazed away at, at, at the Indians until those positions were, were compromised. And, and overrun, but yeah, I mean, it, 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 it was a it's a cavalry job because cavalry has a better chance of pursuing and catching mounted Indians. But you know that, uh, uh, but uh, I mean, they, they, the Indians don't run away, so it's, you know, it's, and he knows they're not running away according to the script scenario. They're there for their to their last stand. So yeah, there's a disconnect there between that. Uh, what the script says and and military tactics.
0: Uh, According to General Sheridan in the movie, if it weren't for Custer's 7th Cavalry sacrificing themselves, then Terry's force would have been wiped out, the squatters massacred, and the entire frontier overrun. And as for Custer himself, he sent a letter, a dying man's declaration that proves the whole peace treaty conspiracy was true. Uh, Tape is forced to resign and the company is dissolved and so on. Uh, How well does the movie do showing the aftermath of Custer's death.
1: Pure, pure fiction. Uh, pure fiction. Um, the Seventh Cavalry lost about two hundred and sixty-five uh, personnel killed at the Little Bighorn. So there were people killed in addition to the two hundred ten men who died with Custer. Uh, most, most of the other dead were with Reno. Um, Indian casualties were uh, dead at least to about at least fifty. But, I mean, it wasn't like the Indians suffered. Uh, it, it, it wasn't a fear of victory for them. And what happened afterwards, though, was that uh, the, the, the Indians decided, we can't feed this mass of people if we stay together. You know, there are no, no 7-Elevens out there. You had, you had to hunt your own food. And so they will, they will break away. They'll will splendor. And that will make it easier for the army, which will flood the area with troops, to hunt them down. Uh, So, I mean, the Grant administration and the uh, uh, the business interests that the Grant administration was uh, serving—they're not held responsible. Well, I mean, Grant is because he's president, but it's the, the 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 main reaction was avenge Custer. You know, the Indians, get the Indians. They're there to they kill those savages, you know, Sitting Bull and all his his friends. So, uh, you know, the, the Indians, uh, they're, they're, uh, their victory makes uh, enhances their their uh, status as targets. And the Army will keep after them. Crook and Terry uh, chase after them with not that much success, but other Abler commanders like Nelson Miles. And uh, they'll keep doing it in the wintertime. Uh, which is rough on the Indians, because their horses, their ponies are grass fed uh, and uh when when snow and ice covers the the grass which uh, if there's any grass left at the end of the summer it's burned out it 's not that nutritious they, they really can't they can't feed them I in mean, wintertime is when they they kind of hole up and they live off the dried buffalo meat that they've gathered uh, in the warmer months, etc. but they're not allowed to do that because the soldiers are after them. the buffalo coats as they call them. Uh, you know, they're, they're just tramping uh, through the winter wastes, and, and so these Indians uh, they either get uh, tracked down and attacked, uh, and, and then the survivors surrender, or, or other people say, you know, "Our kids are dying, our old people are dying. Um, we, we can't keep this up. Better to live on the reservation and to watch the slow death of our families." Um, cool. So you know, Sitting Bull flees into, into, into Canada uh and he'll come back later uh to live on a reservation even crazy horse ends up surrendering uh and then he he's killed in an altercation he gets a bayonet through a kidney because the army thinks he's plotting a revolt um so it's it's you know it's, these people are beaten in with the ground so so anthony Quinn uh maybe it wasn't as dramatic as, as he conveyed it but yeah it was you know, Custer's defeat was also also ensured the conquest of those Indian patriots.
0: Well, the movie doesn't really mention this, but I, I was always under the impression that it was, was Custer's wife who kind of helped secure his legacy after death. What you're saying here almost sounds like there, were, there may have been some other parts of it, too, as far as the military
1: is concerned. She will write three books about their life together in the West. And in those books he is the nineteenth century American of a knight errant he's good gallant brave uh, his motives are always the purest he's you know he's a, a considerate and loving husband all things just being in his in his presence is 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 a pleasure I mean you get some glimpses of Victorian sexuality you're talking about narrow waists and broad shoulders and things like that so she got his butt. With uh, them crossing their private correspondence, they they had a, a pretty healthy sex life, uh, you know. Uh, but uh, yeah, Libby will 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 become his press agent, and so the Custer you see, and they died with their boots on. That that's her her vision of George Armstrong Custer. She also went after uh, the two senior officers in of the Seventh Cavalry, Major Reno. And Captain Benteen, claiming that they deliberately abandoned, Prism, that they would his rescue, and the army will hold a court of inquiry in which those officers will be found or will be clear, but it's interesting when within a few years, each one gets kicked out of the army on morals charges. Bentin Reno is accused of being a peeping Tom looking through the window at his colonel's daughter as she's getting dressed, and Benteen is accused of getting drunk. And, exposing himself to urinate outside of a settler store. So you know it's it's it, I get this sense that the army just waited until no one was looking and then it to kind of handle the situation.
0: Yeah, especially what you're saying. I mean, granted a different scenario, but what you're saying earlier when Custer was in West Point, it's a lot having a lot of things just kind of shoved under the rug, but then here it sounds like, okay, well now we get, we could come up with excuses to get rid of some people. <laughs> Almost the opposite.
1: Yeah. Well you know it's uh uh, in institutions, whether whether someone's right or wrong. If 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 having them around causes trouble, then you get rid of them. You know? and certain people are sacrificed for the the institution's needs.
0: The movie seems to make a point to mention a song called Gary Owen. Uh, was that actually a song that the Seventh Cavalry performed, like we see them doing the movie?
1: Definitely, Gary Owen um, uh, was an Irish drinking song. It originated uh, the 1780s, I think Gary, Allick's the suburb of, of Dublin. It's about, you know, just going out getting drunk and beating people up, smashing windows, having, you know, the, instead of, uh, spawn water, we'll drink from ale, pay the reckoning on the ale. Um, and, uh, but it was a rocking tune and it became popular, uh, yeah, with Wellington's British regiments during the Napoleonic Wars. And it uh, pops up then on, uh, in, in the band of uh, Union Army uh, regimental bands during the Civil War. So Custer undoubtedly heard it during the Civil War. It's interesting, during the Civil War, his favorite, his fighting song was Yankee Doodle. One of his officers wrote, whatever our old brigade band sounded Yankee Doodle, every man's hand went to his saber, because it was all, always a signal for a charge. But he, uh, uh, he, he picks a new one for the 7th Cavalry, and when he won his first big Indian victory at the of Washington, attacking at dawn, he had the 7th Cavalry Regimental Band with him. And the signal of the charge, third bugle blowing the charge, the bandmaster was told, Sound Gary O. And so they're playing Gary on his brass instruments. They didn't play that much of it because the band, band's saliva froze. But if they got they enough notes out to get the attack going. And uh, Arthur Penn in Little Pig Man will show a fight and Drum Band playing Gary Owen when Custer attacks the Indians at the washer.
0: Today we are talking about a movie that was made in 1941, but if a movie about Custer was made today in 2022, what do you think some of the differences would be in how his life is portrayed?
1: Well, you know, there would be greater consciousness uh, regarding uh, the Indian. Simon's story in the early 1990s, I think 1991 ABC did a two part series called son of the morning star, which was based on a bestselling book by Evan Cannell. And that movie attempted to, well, it's sympathetic to the end. It's sympathetic to the end. Um, Custer, in fact, comes across as kind of a, a surly kind of guy, just driven by his ambition does care about his family, is in love with his wife, et cetera. But he's, he's not as attractive a character as the other being the crazy horse played by Rodney A. Grant. Uh, and I imagine that even today uh, that uh, if a film was made about the wolfing uh or about Custer's life, uh, Custer wouldn't fare, fare as well as some Indian, Indian figures, uh, which is too bad because there were two sides to it. Uh, there were people who were willing to go to their death, uh, with him. And there were other people, again, some of Calvary, but you read memoirs and diaries and letters, about half the people serve under him, love him, half hate him. Okay. And being able to try to capture and find an actor who could show you both sides of a man who could who could inspire, uh, those diametrically opposed reactions. That would be a challenge for a scriptwriter, And that would be a challenge for an actor.
0: Well, let's say that you were in charge of that. What would be one of the things that you would leave? Like, what would be one of the things that you would change about that?
1: Well, um, well, as I said, I, I would try to, uh, see if we could, uh, if we, we could capture that, uh, that seeming contradiction, uh, yeah. kind of thing. Um, but also, you know, um, now, Custer's an Indian fighter, that's how he's cast, but he also fought for it. Uh, the Lakota, one reason they were powerful was because they were able to take land and resources from their neighbors. And uh, uh, the whites, whenever they went into battle, they had a large number of Indians fighting on their side. The tribes that had been uh, vanquished uh, by the Indians, they were fighting. I mean, they were able to constantly do a kind of divide-and-conquer Uh strategy uh, throughout the Indian force. But when Custer goes into the Valley of Little Big Horn, he has uh, uh, 35 Indian scouts. Uh, and and their job is not just to say, look, there are other Indians. They're going a fight. Uh, uh, most of them were Arikara, or Rees, as the whites called them, and the others were Crow. And it's interesting, the land on which the Valley of Little Big More was fought, that was traditionally Crow territory. In fact, today, that's the Crow agency. Uh, they, they have these big... Uh, Custer's Last Stand reenactments uh each year, uh, and they bring in white cavalry reenactors and, and they use local Indian talent. The local Indian talent though are the descendants of the Indians who fought on Custer's side. But in the reenactment, they're playing the Sioux because it's good business. Okay. Uh but you know, uh trying to bring in that kind of subtlety. There's this it's it's not just white versus red. Uh, I think that would uh, that would be um, I think that would be helpful as well. A
0: more complex story.
1: Yeah, a more complex story.
0: Thank you so much for coming on to chat about They Died With Their Boots On. For someone listening to this who wants to learn more about your work, can you share a bit about your books and where they can get them?
1: This film, as much as anything, is the reason why I became a historian. And so it's not coincidence that my first book, Custer Victorious, The Civil War Battles, of General George Armstrong Custer, Uh, you uh, you know, that, that, that was my first book. I didn't see that very well but, uh, because I had this this Custer fascination. It's still, still a trip. It's still selling. in, in paperbacks. People can buy it at uh, Amazon.com or wherever else uh, books are sold. I've done other books um, uh, that, about Custer that, that are out of print, but I you know kind of maintained this interest in the Last stance. It's one, one of the things that led me to Wake Island. And I wrote a couple of books about the, the Marine uh, stand at, at Wake in 1941. Uh, the one about the battle was called Facing Fearful Lots. and it's kind of interesting because the script for Wake Island resembles. They died with their boots on. At the end, the Marines are all showing uh, are, are showing the Marines are all showing fighting to the death, uh, and they're being you know, wiped out by hordes of Japanese, just like Custer the Seventh were wiped out by hordes of Lakota. And and the movies were, um, uh, you know, cast that way to uh, inspire patriotism and, you know, inspire Americans to, you know, uh, step forward put on your country's uniform and make the sacrifices necessary for victory. Uh, In fact, The guy With Their Boots On uh, came out, oh, um, 1934, seven years after the book that turned Custer's image inside out. Was published. Frederick Van der published a book called "Glory" on which depicted Custer as unprincipled, um, ambition-driven, uh, self-absorbed, elder who was willing to sacrifice friend or foe to move up in rank to get more attention, et cetera. And that book was a bestseller, uh, and, and it was affecting the way people looked at Custer. But when Warner Brothers uh, decided to make this movie, they said, "Well, you know, we got a war coming on." Uh, it would be unpatriotic, you know, to make any army officer look that bad. So the Libby Custer version uh, was uh, presented to the public uh, in that film, and it helped to perpetuate for a while the positive vision of Custer, but that would soon, that would soon fade in the 50s. And the sixties.
0: I like the comparison that you made of Wake Island, which, of course, you we know, we talked about that movie too, which came out. In, I think Wake Island came out in nineteen forty-two, right? Which would have been you know right after this. So very heavy on both, very heavy on the propaganda side with World War Two,
1: and Americans willingly sacrificing themselves to buy time, uh, so that their countrymen will be ready to will be ready to prevail. So yeah, that's so this last stand theme it's been a powerful current in Western literature going back to the Swan of Rome. And uh, I imagine, uh, well, we still see that. We see uh, films about uh, doomed uh, uh, outposts or, or patrols in Afghanistan or Iraq. Uh, and it's, there's still that last stand quality. Well,
0: thank you again so much for your time and, and chatting about this. I had a lot of fun.
1: Same here. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure.
0: This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. I'd like to thank Gregory J.W. Irwin for sharing his expertise about the historical accuracy of 1941's they died with their boots on. If you want to learn more about Custer, I would highly recommend Gregory's book called Custer Victorious, The Civil War Battles of General George Armstrong Custer. And don't forget you can hear more from Gregory in a couple previous episodes of Based on a True Story when he joined us to chat about the movie Wake Island as well as the movie Glory. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Custer's promotion to general during the Civil War came as a surprise. Number two, Custer was not a a model student at West Point. Number three, Custer commanded the 7th Cavalry during the Civil War. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. Custer's promotion to general during the Civil War came as a surprise. That's true. Gregory explained that the movie was correct to suggest that Custer's promotion to general came as a surprise to him and many others. But he also pointed out the movie was wrong to suggest that it was an accident Let's bounce around a bit to get to number three next. Custer commanded the 7th Cavalry during the Civil War. That's the lie. As we learned, during the Civil War, there was the 1st through 6th Cavalry, but it wasn't until after the war that the 7th through 10th Cavalry was raised and Custer was given the command of the 7th. That means number two is also true. Custer was not a model student at West Point. Gregory told us that Custer basically believed there were two positions worth having in class – first place or last place. And since he wasn't inclined to work hard enough to attain the top of the class, he tried to stay as close to the bottom of the class as he could without being kicked out. In fact, as Gregory pointed out, Custer admitted that he was not a role model during his career at West Point. Last but not least, it's time now to let you know how long it took to create this episode. If you're a long-time listener to the podcast, you'll know that I like to share this information just to help you appreciate all the podcasts that you listen to. After all, a huge majority of podcasts out there are like mine, completely free to listen to. But that does not mean they're free to create. Quite the opposite. They can cost quite a bit of money. And almost every podcast out there has higher costs than money. They have high costs in time. The time it takes to learn the technical side, to research the episodes, to record them, to edit them, and so on. But I only have the stats for my own show, so with that in mind, today's episode took me 39 hours to create. To make it clear, that's only my time. Gregory has spent years researching and gathering his expertise, so obviously it does not include any of that time. And to be a little more specific, even that time of mine doesn't even include all of my time because that 39 hours is only the time that it took for me to produce this one episode it doesn't include all the time that I spend building and maintaining the based on a true story website finding new guests and scheduling and the logistics of all that the email newsletter social media and all those things that don't have anything to do with making today's episode but are still things that are required to make the podcast overall in a nutshell This podcast may be free to listen to, but it's not free to create. And that's why I'm so thankful for the sponsors whose ads you've heard on this episode. You can find more about them over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash advertisers. But they're not the only ones helping to keep the show alive. There are wonderful people just like you who are helping to keep this show financially going. So if you found value in today's episode, and if you're using a podcast 2.0 app, I'd really appreciate it if you boost now. Otherwise, I hope you enjoyed today's episode enough to share it with a friend. And maybe even consider helping to support the next episode over at com slash support. Once again, that's com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. And I'll chat with you again
1: really soon.